Ready for the interview And if you get a cue Live on the laptop Watch what I'm gonna do Welcome to the show Let them know we got a point of view Hey, yo Let's have a combo Say what you feel Be real, that's the motto Real talk pronto Doctor D, PhD Hit the intro Hold up, wait Gotta be social Network global Home for the locals Gotta be social Network global Home for the locals Alright, Nasheen Purple hair don't care. Here we go. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's the beginning of a Tuesday. I was born on a Tuesday, so they're special. And I get to talk to you. So all How good. You, I mean, I don't know what day I was born on. I guess I'll have to figure that out. I'm like, I'm impressed with people. Like, they know all this stuff about the day they were born. I'm like, I don't know. I, I have no clue. I, you know, it's it's surprisingly easy to figure out which day. Yeah, I must be surprisingly bad at even just looking into it. No. <laughs> That's probably what it is. You know. It's not what I meant. You know. But it's awesome to have you here. And uh, I love the purple hair. Before we got on, I was like, you know, we have something in common. Mine's not purple, but we're making a statement here, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. I think that you should express your personality in whatever shape or form you like. It's the expression that is really important and that has been for me. So when you're in sync with what's on the outside, with what's on the inside, I feel like that's when you can really feel authentic. You know what? I feel like this is, this is a great segue into public speaking, right? I mean, like, <laughs> Is the person you're yes. presenting and you're public speaking similar to the person like you feel like you are with that? And I feel like like for me, like with my hair and my whole look, I've always wanted this kind of self-expression to match who I've always felt. And but tell me a little bit how that manifests itself in the public speaking arena and maybe just some background in that with for you. It's a really important point that you bring up because of course, we want to be ourselves on any kind of a public stage, but at the same time, you have to amp up specific parts of your personality. And for some people, it comes a little bit more naturally than others. The idea is really to understand what is going to make the maximum impact for your audience. Is your audience a group of academics that just want the facts? Is your audience a group of Gen Zers, for example, who are interested in being entertained as well as informed, not just one or the other. Secret is everyone wants to be entertained, even the academics. It's just about understanding how to package different parts of yourself and put certain parts of your personality on steroids to really bring out the message and make it, make it very memorable and impactful. So how would you advise someone who, okay, this is a funny thing. This whole hair thing, I think is an in in interesting thing because I would say in the past, how you look, there was kind of this stereotypical look that maybe society would have you move towards. Hey, you got to be clean cut. You have to present mm -hmm. like this very forward stance type of thing. Has that changed in public speaking? Yes, I would like to think so. It has definitely changed in the overall business world. I get 
very interesting feedback on both my purple hair and, you know, the eyebrow ring. <laughs> I get some trolls. They are always in a minority, which is great. I've had some trolls on Facebook say, I'm not going to take public speaking advice from a purple haired person who has an eyebrow ring. But the majority of the time, I actually have people come to me and say, we love your energy. We love the fact that you are so unapologetically yourself and we want that. And I find that audiences now more and more just want people to be human. They just want, they just want people to talk to them like it's a one-on-one -on -one human interaction. You're no longer a presenter of facts on any kind of stage. And if you are, you're not living in 2023. You're, a, you know, a, a legacy of the, the past. So I really think that in a lot of contexts, people are embracing this kind of fresh, direct, human way of presenting information. I mean, I'm a huge fan of that. All right. So we're going to go with that. <laughs> How do you feel? Let's Let's dive deeper into this. Okay. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, clearly, we're both people of uh, different ethnicities. Of And do you ever get pushback, maybe culturally, of how someone should appear or present themselves in public based off of the culture you're from? Oh, wow. We're like, I love that we're like three minutes into the conversation and we're already getting to the hard hitting stuff. I'm not messing That's around. That's awesome. I don't want to mess around. Awesome. I love that. This is a, a very, it's a very relevant question for me specifically. And I love that you, I guess you looked at me and you looked at this brown person from Asia, originally from Pakistan slash India. And you can see that I am not very typical. I would like to think I'm not typical in general as a human being, <laughs> but I also think everyone is not, no one is really typical. So I do think I would stand out no matter which race I belong to, but I do belong to a very specific culture. And I come from a specific country where standing out is not appreciated. It's not taught. It's not recommended, not advised, because in homogenous cultures and communities, when you stand out, you are putting yourself and those that you love in danger. The great safe thing to do is to blend in to say, yes, you agree with all the things that that culture or community believes in, or to get out, which is what I did. I didn't agree with the cultural values of the country that I was from, so I escaped. I like to call it an escape. It wasn't that dramatic. I just went I went to New York to, to study film. That was the first time I, I lived outside of, uh, outside of Pakistan. I had traveled before. Quite a bit, actually. I traveled all over Europe, a little bit in Africa. I had gone to the U.S. before as well and to China. But that was the first time I started living outside of Pakistan. That was about 10 years ago. And then I never looked back. I am not alone in this. There were a lot of friends who were with me who have also left the country for similar reasons. Some of it because of physical security. There was a lot of 
street crime and we never felt 100% safe, which is true for a lot of developing countries, but also for the mental sink. I never felt as an adult, I would say as an adult, I never felt in sync with just things like inequality between gender, the fact that you have to be a certain way, the fact that you have to believe in certain things and there is no, there's, it's very black and white. It's a culture of extreme polarity. And I believe in nuances. I believe <laughs> in many, many shades of not just gray, but all kinds of colors, as you can see. So this is a long answer to that question that for sure, I did not have purple hair when I was living back there. I did have, I did have tattoos and an eyebrow ring, and they were always a little bit disconcerting for people. It was not very common. And in general, in general, being a woman is not extremely comfortable where I'm from. I, I have an interesting perspective on this because I, I've had several clients from Pakistan, India, and, uh, you know, before that happened, I had no clue about this culture. But I spent a lot of I spent a lot of time and continue to spend a lot of time with clients who are from these places. And I think you hit it on the head, homogenous culture, homogenous culture. This is the key phrase here. What is it about that type of culture that limits potential or has limited creativity? Outside of the, I hear the, like the security, the danger risk, but what is it about the ideology of homogenous cultures that dampens that creativity and that spark? I feel like they see creativity as a sign of danger, a sign of anarchy, a sign of mm. not conforming to the rules. Mm. So why encourage creativity if you can't control it? A lot of homogenous cultures are cultures of control. They're not cultures of freedom. So mm. freedom is very closely linked to creativity. I mean, that was awesome. <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> I don't think I thought about it that way. Homogenous cultures are essentially linked to control, right? And I think when you try to break away from any type of control, people don't like that. They want you to stay in this bubble with that. Mm -hmm. Now, how did, when you went to New York, what was that like for you to transition from Pakistan to like New York City or where, wherever you were in New York? Yeah. Yeah, I was in New York City. Yeah, yeah. Okay. My school was in, are, are you familiar with New York? I am. Where are you? Yes. Okay. Where are you based? I'm in so Washington State, as far as from New York as you can be right now. But that is, I have plenty that is of family. Far. I have plenty of family from New York and I've been in New York City many times. So. Okay. I was in, I was in the Lower East Side. Mm -hmm. I was in Union Square. That was my school. And I lived in Brooklyn off the end train. I actually got married, um, I didn't meet my husband there. My my husband, I met him in Pakistan, but then we went to New York together and we got married in Prospect Park. So we have a very special relationship with New York for sure. But I do want to say that a lot of us in Pakistan grew up very Americanized, very Westernized in general, but very Americanized in specific because we grew up consuming similar kinds of media, similar kinds of music. I grew up on MTV and 
just you know just watching and 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 assimilating very similar stuff you know we watch scooby doo and johnny quest and johnny bravo and all kinds of stuff that yeah. a lot of my american friends grew up watching and listening to so and we studied english from a young age we we all grew up bilingual so we studied english at the same time when we were when we were kids so in a way it was there was hardly any cultural shock and i had traveled to new york before I had spent a few days there, of course, so not not too long. But the U.S. is very it's very interesting for me because I feel like at heart I'm a little bit American, which is really bizarre because I actually became French last year. Wow! Uh, my husband is is French, so I became French. But at heart, I feel very American, especially during those times. I know it's changed since then. I was there during Obama's time. Which was which was a good time. Those were good times. I enjoyed being there then. It was a time of change, and hope and optimism. So, for me, it was definitely a very special experience. So, well, two things as we transition into public speaking, your gig here. Mm-hmm. Let's ask the obvious one. I think why are people so scared of public speaking? One. Let's <laughs> tackle that first. What's the fear? Right. Oh, so it works on many different angles, in many different ways. Some of it is very evolutionary. When we traveled in packs, standing apart from the pack, being in a place where you are alone and people can watch you and you don't have a weapon, all of those things are scary from an evolutionary perspective. And we somehow carry that fear with us. This, there have been studies that have been done on this. So there's a fear of being singled out on a stage where people are watching you and you feel defenseless, you feel helpless, you don't feel like you're in control. And when that happens, you get a fight or flight instinct kicking in where you either feel that you have to fight it out. It's it's you against them, or you want to run away. And both of those things are a direct consequence of feeling like you're in danger. And of course, that's why we feel fear. So it's a very deep-seated fear that a lot of us have. And that's why you have to really address why it is that you feel that fear. Of course, this is not something that a lot of people will be able to articulate. So what people think the fear is about could be a bad experiences in the past when we are younger and we are kind of forced onto a stage sometimes we don't perform well we get stage fright we we remember we have memories of people looking at us and us not being able to rise to the occasion so we a lot of us have that first traumatic experience that we just never forget and we just hate the idea of being in that spot again so some people associate it with that trauma. Some people associate it with just fear of being judged, fear of being observed, fear of being evaluated. And so much of it is just kind of shrouded in this misunderstanding because it's honestly not you versus them. You're there to help the audience and talk to the audience. And the audience is not this scary mass of people looking at you. This is a topic I think is really pretty relevant for a lot of people Um, because, you know, I think Mm -hmm. now with the Internet and everything, a lot of people want to do TED Talks. They want to get 
they film themselves. They want to be good yeah. at speaking. Here, here's something interesting I wanted to ask you. I just thought about it is, how do you tell when someone is not an authentic public speaker versus someone that is like basically someone who's like a salesman public speaker where you don't feel the authenticity versus something that feels very relatable and real? A lot of people have been trained to speak a certain way. So they feel that that inhuman, not even inhuman, really, <laughs> just robotic and stiff yeah. way of speaking is, is the norm. So it's really about first just observing. This is how I start work with most of my clients, where the first stage is just doing a deep dive and understanding where you're at right now watching recorded events where you might have presented or just speaking, just speaking in the moment and recording it and analyzing it and watching back what it is that you're actually presenting. A lot of people tell me that it's hard for them to feel a connection with the words. And that might be a very good reason why they're coming across as stiff. They can't feel the words that they're saying, either because they've memorized them or it's just words that are not their own. You know, a lot of CEOs get speeches written by their PR person, their marketing department, and they're just handed these words to speak. Of course, they're not going to feel a connection with what they're saying. So it's really about peeling back the layers. First, being able to look at yourself objectively, which a lot of people are very uncomfortable with. Yes, People hate watching themselves back on camera. And it's understandable. You feel like you've performed well but then when you actually watch it back you think oh no this was wrong it was so bad I can't even understand why it was bad but it was so bad <laughs> so a lot of my work is helping like equipping people giving them the tools to understand why they disliked their performance what was it breaking it down into your voice your body language your gestures your expressions your tonality no, and, and it makes a lot of sense. It's just from someone, I've done a lot of public speaking um, and I've seen a lot of public speaking. And it's just interesting when you find someone who's like, like when you connect to that person, like when you watch someone, what, what mm -hmm. happens then you feel like a connection? What is that thing that makes you feel a connection to someone when they're speaking? It depends on the context. For example, in a one-on-one -on -one context, if someone is interviewing me in this context, for example, listening is the first thing. And there are ways, of course, to listen and observe when you're on a stage as well. But in a in a direct one-to-one -one context, I would say listening is the absolute number one thing that establishes that connection because it makes the other person feel seen and feel heard. And when they're feeling that, that's when they feel like they're connecting with the other person on a stage, you can still carry over that feeling of being there for the audience. We've all seen speakers who will get on the stage and they just start their PowerPoint and they just get on with it. <laughs> I'm here to present to you the five findings that our team found. And so the first one is that this is the data. And then the second one, and you look at this graph, they have no interest in connecting with the audience. It's obvious. 
They just want to get it over with, either because they're unaware that connecting to the audience will actually make their message more impactful and memorable, or they don't find that that's necessary. It's an incorrect perception. So those are the people that really need to examine why they're there in the first place. If you are just there to present your PowerPoint, that could have been an email. <laughs> you are not there to just inform people of this slide behind you. You're not there to read it out. You are not there to just deliver the information. You are there to share your message. And then the PowerPoint or any other tool you use is just a tool. Yeah, it's it's actually make the last public speaking thing I did. I presented conferences a lot and uh, they're like, oh, you know, we'll let people in a half an hour before your presentation, if you want. A lot of people don't do that. So no, let people in. And I often just talk to people in the crowd ahead of time. I spend a lot of time just chatting. And then it feels like when I start doing my presentation, they already know me already. Mm -hmm. We've created this synergy already. Because I always feel like public speaking is about creating kind of a warmth and a feeling. It's like, well, it's not just the information, it's the environment that you're creating at the same time. You know? Absolutely. And as the person on the stage, it's your job to create that environment. You are the, the ceiling and the floor in terms of the energy and the vibe. The audience is either going to rise to your level of energy or sink to your level of boredom. <laughs> they're going to take a cue from you. So I love that strategy. You know, you're you're basically doing what a warm-up comedian does in a talk show setting where they're warming up the crowd and getting them in the zone so that the the comedian or the talk show host can come on stage and and then do their thing and have this warmed up audience. You're warming up your own audience and that's a great idea. Yeah, I I just think it's I just like I just like talking to people. Honestly, I was like, "Oh, more people to talk to ahead of time." You know, it's a it's just a gathering of people. I don't know for that, but uh, I'm curious, what's the best public speaking or speech you've ever heard that you were in attendance for? Ooh, that I was personally in attendance yeah, for? Yeah, that you were there for, you heard. Oh, I've seen a lot of stuff that I love, but I, I, I don't know if I've been in attendance of something that that I... I loved, but I, I can tell you one that was very memorable to me, where I was at this charity fundraiser event. So, you know, high profile, a lot of people from so-called high society were there. It was a big event, maybe 300 people. It was to raise money for these uh, schools in underprivileged areas. And this this lady, who I believe was one of the one of the principal benefactors of this organization had to get on stage and present the whole event. She was the first talk and she had to basically talk about what the organization does and why everyone was there and welcome them and create this great environment. She gets up on stage and she takes the mic and she looks at everyone and she starts her speech, but her voice is shaking. And she gets the first two sentences out, you know, hi, my, my name is this, and thank you all for coming. And then she stops. She just stops 
and everyone's looking at each other. And then she says, I am so sorry. This is the first time that I'm talking to these many people and I am very nervous. <laughs> and everyone starts clapping. People get up from their seats and they just give her a standing ovation because it was that human moment of connection with the audience. She was so brave. She stopped and she was able to really be vulnerable in front of these 300 people. A lot of them were CEOs and C-level execs from all these companies. And when everyone sat down, then she went on with her speech and you could see she was smiling. She had gained a little more confidence. Of course, her voice still shook at times. She was still a little nervous. It didn't, you know, it didn't just flip a switch, but she made it through her speech. And then she got a second standing ovation at the end when she was done. And that was incredible. I haven't seen that before. And that really goes to show what I was talking about earlier, that the audience is on your side. The audience wants you to do well. They are not judging you. They're not evaluating you. And they're they're certainly not going to tell you later that you perform really badly. 99.99% of the time, if you ask anyone in the audience, how was, how was my talk? They're going to say it was great. So that was a memorable time for me to be in the audience. That's wonderful. It just reminds me that the human part is the really important part you know, making yeah. mistakes, just, you know, being nervous is normal and things. And I think when you do it a lot, you, you, and you watch a lot of people and then you're doing it yourself, you're, you're much, you, you can see it very quickly. Like I'm sure you spot it very quickly when you watch someone like I, I had, a, this actually makes me thank you. I had a very interesting conversation on my podcast with someone who does Toastmasters a lot mm -hmm. and who does a lot of, speaking to large corporations we were on the podcast we're chatting and it felt like they were like speaking to me like i was a c-suite person <laughs> like it was like it felt very polished you know what i mean like it was yeah. very polished yep. and i couldn't help it nasheen i told them that <laughs> during the podcast <laughs> I did. I said, yeah, yeah. I said, this is throwing me off. This is literally what I said. This is throwing me off. Like, it's almost like too much. <laughs> you know, it's so interesting that you bring that up. Now, Toastmasters is a very interesting organization. I love a lot of things about them. I love that they've made public speaking so accessible, that there yes. are chapters in, I think, every city, every country in the world, maybe, or a lot of them. So it's very easy to find a community of people that want to improve their skills just like you. I always was suspicious about exactly this that you're talking about. I myself, I'm not a member of Toastmasters and I have attended, observed, I've observed only one or two Toastmasters sessions in my life. So I never really talk about it too much because I feel that I need more data to be able right. to say it. But my experience has been exactly what you just described. I observed these people practicing in these Toastmasters sessions. And they just seemed like they were practicing the skill, but not the heart. Yes. And there's, the skills were fine. I 
couldn't pick apart their skills. They were fine. They were confident. They were clear. They were enunciating. They were pausing, modulating their voice. But it all seemed like on the surface. And I just did not feel any kind of connection to their words or what they were saying or who they were. And I always thought, like I said, I don't really talk very much in public about this because I don't want to base my, I don't want to generalize just based on like two, the two times that I observed it, but it's super interesting that you observed the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very familiar with it, but uh, it's just, it could be any organization or whatever. It's even really not even, it's just coming across in a way that like when I said to this person, we're friends. I, I, I like them. I said, I said, it's not like it's a bad thing. It's just like, I don't, I feel like if I hung out with you, I really, I'm not sure who I'd be hanging out with. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> That's a great thing to say, right? right? Because when you present yourself on a stage or on a screen, of course you should give people an idea of who you really are. But if you put up that front, you're putting up these walls between you and the person. So that's a great way to, to describe it, that if you don't get an idea of what it's like to hang out with the person off that stage, you're not going to trust that they're bringing all of themselves to that stage. Yeah, I think, and I think maybe, I don't know whether if you get that with people, maybe they start trying to be in public speaking, they try to present something that they think other people want. And that's when I think it becomes stiff or you try to present a character because I, I believe a lot of people are playing a character and like my bullshit meter is really high. Like, I'm just like, man, it's just like, <laughs> is this a like, who are you? Like, I just really ask. I'm like, I need to know that, like, who is this person? And I feel like you let me in. Let me in. Like, if you're not going to let me in, I'm not going to connect with you. So I need to know who are you? it's great that you're basically talking about what i think people are moving more and more towards we are a youtube generation we're the tiktok generation not me specifically i'm pretty much a millennial but <laughs> we are living in tiktok times we're living in times where yes you can perform for the camera but yes you should also still be yourself I feel like our threshold as audiences in general is just rising. There was a point where we would have tolerated people being these stiff robotic versions of themselves on camera. And now we don't. You have presidents of countries now on social media just talking as themselves. Because if they present an image that is too refined, it's just not believable. So I love that. I feel that what you just said is very indicative of this overall change that audiences are going through. And I love it. I think it's challenging. It challenges people to get out of that comfort zone of being too refined, too perfect, and too much like they're just not there to connect. They're just there to present information. Yeah. Well, I think this is somewhat of a danger still with that because like, well, you talk about TikTok. I'm not into that. That's not my thing and all that. Whatever you want to do it, it's great. But when you give people just mm -hmm. a tiny snapshot of yourself, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that I don't know who that is. I honestly have no clue who that is. That's why I like a longer conversation because you can only fool me for a little bit. 
but if you get on with me for an hour, the real you is going to appear at some point. Right? It's easy to do a short and say a bunch of stuff, but once you actually start talking to somebody, pretty quickly you figure out the game. Like, oh, like, uh, here's a good example. I, I, mm-hmm. I talk to all types of people. And often when I get like, say, a sex-based uh, guest on, they work in the sex industry, they're way mm-hmm. more conservative in a long-form conversation than they are when they're performing or being raunchy. Mm-hmm. I'm like, who am I getting? I just tell people, I'm like, I don't understand these two people. I will say that. <laughs> I was like, and I forced mm-hmm. them to tell me who they are because I'm like, I I need to I need to know this. Like, is this a performer? Or is this the real you? Because you're what you're putting out. I don't. You're you're selling something that you're not actually are. Maybe that's what people want. I don't know. But it's just like, I don't want that. I want to know who you are. <laughs> you know. Mm. And you know, we all have different aspects of our personalities too, right? We're not oh. one dimensional. The balance. The trick is to find the balance between yes. the different aspects of you that should still have their roots in who you are and what you believe in. So I'm sure you have friends from different walks of life. Maybe your friends from the corporate world see a slightly different side of you than your friends from your childhood. Same for the families, you know, your, I'm sure your family sees a different side of you from the, the Dr. D that people see on a podcast. And it's different from the, the Darian, the Darian is your real name, right? Cause yes, I, yes. I just have Dr. D in my head, Darian. Darian that Dr. D, it's okay. <laughs> right. So the, it's, there are different sides of you. So people do see. I feel like it's, of course, very natural to have those different sides of you and have them come out at different, on different platforms and on different occasions, but not to have them be so so different that the real you gets lost. And for that, you have to actually spend time with the real you. You have to find ways to articulate your own values to yourself. That is an exercise a lot of people don't do. I didn't do it for the longest time. Why? Why do you think you didn't do it? Because it's so easy to go with the flow. It's easy to adapt. So I have been, I have been a chameleon for a lot of my life. I, again, I guess being, being a woman in a conservative society kind of makes you into a chameleon in a lot of ways because you have to conform in certain ways and kind of pretend that to go along with whatever environment you're in. And then of course, because I always had somewhat rebellious thoughts in my head, I had to be a chameleon because I had to understand when to express them and when to hold back. So I've always been a very adaptive, very flexible person when it comes to changing with the environment that I'm in. I'm also quite extroverted and a lot of extroverts take on the energy around them and they can change depending on what environment they're put in. So it was super easy for me to go with the flow all the time till I realized that I am now building a business based on helping people understand who they really are and how they want to present themselves on stage. And for that, I need to understand this about myself. So I I had a whole, I mean, I think I, I took six months uh, to a year just understanding what I stand for, 
what it is that's really at my core. Because being a speaker on different platforms, you of course have to be flexible. You have to adapt to your audience. Like you said, with with the, the, the guest that you had who couldn't adapt, I'm sure if he talks to a CEO, that kind of behavior and those mannerisms would be appreciated. But when he talks to you, he had to adapt, which he didn't do. So you have to, as, a, as, a, as an experienced speaker who wants to make impact, you have to know what parts of yourself to adapt and what parts you are never going to compromise on. You know, if you if you ask me tomorrow, like Nasheen, for this, for that, this off this training, I'm gonna have to ask you to dye your hair black. And I'm gonna have to ask you to, you know, wear the specific dress. I'm gonna be like, I'm so sorry, I'm I'm not doing that. No, <laughs> that's something I'm not compromising on. So it's it's about knowing, it's about that balance, really, because you can't always just also stick to one version of yourself. I feel like that's also limiting. Tell you know, this brought up an interesting idea: um, compromising yourself. How do it's interesting in the society we live in, especially social media, let's say YouTube, whatever, is I've gotten to some interesting discussions about the presentation of yourself and how you can grow something without compromising who you are. This happens all the time on the Internet. Maybe you see mm-hmm. that a certain type of content that you produce or speaking that you do produces a huge 10x return. Then you but keep that, doing that. Right. But that is not you and that feels bad how do you overcome that because i think that's a big problem for a lot of people if something gets viral it becomes big and you're like this isn't like my thing but i'm going to keep doing it because it's giving me this 10x return that is a tricky place to navigate because going viral has so many different aspects to it. A lot of people believe that going viral has no effect on your business or your or your brand, but I'm of the school of thought that actually it really does. Of course, it depends on the level of, of virality and what it is that you've put out that's gone viral. I have seen that a lot of people that put out content that is still connected to what they do and that if that goes viral, that has a very big impact on their business and on their personal brand. So first is about really tracing back what are your own goals? What are your medium and long-term goals? If your goal is to grow your business or to grow your personal brand and creating this viral content is, is helping you, of course, the reasonable, logical thing to do is to create more along the same lines, but at the same time, make sure you add in other things into the mix. The worst thing you can do for your personal brand is to be restricted to, you know, like a one trick pony kind of situation. You don't want to be just known for that very, like one very, very specific thing that that you can do and no one knows what else you can do. It's again about finding that balance. Of course, you don't want to be a jack of all trades and show people that you can do many, many other things, but exploring what it is that made you go viral, trying to replicate it in creative ways. So don't just repeat the formula 100%. Try to understand what can you change about it and what is at the core of it that made it go viral. And then add other things into the mix to experiment. So that's where you need to have a little bit of tolerance for risk. You can't just play it safe. So when you're 
creating your content strategy, you're creating your video strategy, throw in some videos that you feel will do well based on what others, how others have done well, and throw in some new stuff. I, I'll tell you the story I just created. So on LinkedIn, I share a lot of videos about how to get better as a public speaker, how to speak with more confidence, how to have more energy. And they always get really good response. I have this very strong community that loves my videos and appreciates them. And, you know, I feel very supported. And, you know, now there's this whole trend of chat GPT, which yeah, I'm aware of chat GPT. Yeah. So on LinkedIn, it's catching on like wildfire. There are a bajillion people talking about chat GPT. So I thought, let me create something that's like a public speaking version of it. So a public speaking robot called Speed GPT. And I created the sketch. I have a background in improv. So I created the sketch, which was very different from my usual content. It wasn't informative. It was just entertainment. And people really liked it. And I took a risk. When I was sharing it, I just published it yesterday. I was sharing it and I was telling my, like my heart was beating. And this was like the 50th or the 60th video that I've shared. It's not the first, but I I understood that, okay, you're you're taking a little bit of a risk. It's different from what people are used to, but people loved it and it really paid off. So it's always going to be a risk. You have to keep, you have to just understand that a strategy, a content strategy in any way has to be a mix of what you think and know will work and then experimenting with new things all the time so that you can grow. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's really good advice. It's, it's, yeah, I feel like, you know, I definitely struggle with um, not this public speaking aspect, but of like what aligns with who I am as a person. It's like, if I see something that does really well, that I'm like, mm, I'm not really into this, but like, it seems like a lot of people are into it. It's like, how do you, how do you deal with that? You know, cause this is what I see with a lot of content creators is the desire to create content that other people will love and that you will get good yeah. feedback on. But what if that thing that other people love, you actually don't love. And, and it's yeah. this, this fight between, creating something, putting out this public persona that you know is not what you want it to be, but other people want it to be. And the conflict between that. I think that's part of public speaking too, is just like the presentation of self. Who am I? Am I like, is this really representative of how I, I feel about myself? Or am I just public speaking for the likes, the adulation? The connection, you know, I think that's a very human thing to like grapple with, you know. Very much so. The immediate audience and how they react to you, that has such a deep impact on how well you perform. Just like a stand-up comedian, when the jokes fall flat, they feel less and less confident. Yeah. And I have been in, I've been in the audience in open mics, for example, with comedians that don't have too much experience when their jokes keep falling flat, I have seen people just walk off the stage, just feel deflated and demotivated. And that's really sad and heartbreaking to watch. So you as the audience have immense power. And then of course, you're for online content, you're adding in the complexity of the algorithms. You have to always think of what kind of content can you create? What hashtags can you use? What trends can you capitalize on? 
that are going to have the algorithm push out your content to more people. Because at the end of the day, we're creating for other people. Of course, there are there is a select group of people that have the luxury to create for themselves. But for a lot of the rest of us who are <laughs> creating content, either for a living or to support our businesses, we don't have the luxury of just creating for ourselves. So I think the first step is to acknowledge that and be okay with it. I feel like it's the same journey that every artist takes the moment they start getting paid for their work. The moment that there are clients interested in buying what you have to offer, you have to start thinking of it like a business. And a business doesn't have to be heartless. It doesn't have to be a zero or one. It doesn't have to be a zero-sum equation, in my opinion. You can be an artist and be creative and be true to who you are, but also adapt and present different parts of your art or different or package your art in a way that's going to be re received by people. Uh, have you heard of this principle, um, the Maya principle? No. Uh, most advanced yet acceptable. This is something that I think about a lot. People love innovation. People love new things. People love creativity, but only to an extent. There is a limit. What people love is the most advanced yet acceptable version of something. So let me give you an example. I often talk about, this is usually with my friends, not in public. With my friends, I often talk about how I'm not a big believer in regimented systems and structures. I, I love freedom and I love the idea of there being empowered individuals. That can be packaged in many different ways. If I don't use the Maya principle, I could go out tomorrow on a podcast and talk about anarchy, everyone for themselves, power to the people. Is my message going to be received well? No. It's too jarring. It's too shocking. It's, it's way too different. It's not acceptable. It's too innovative. This is why a lot of people that are on that extreme end of any ideology get pushback. It's the same for feminism, unfortunately. What I have to do is take those ideas and package them in the most advanced yet acceptable way that surprises people only to an extent, to the extent to which they are willing to go. Just like I did, actually. I think the first time, the first way I described it, I believe in empowering individuals and I leave it at that. So I believe in individual empowerment. I believe in individualism. And I believe that everyone should have the freedom to choose. And that could describe the U.S. government, or at least the ideal version of it. That could describe <laughs> the French government. I'm not saying I want to take down the government. I'm saying that I believe in empowerment. So that's me packaging it in a Maya way. That's going to get people nodding yes. It's going to say, of course, we're all for individual empowerment. Who isn't? So it's really about how you package yourself and you have to be intentional about it. And I really feel the most successful people in the world are those that understand how to package their ideas in ways that are innovative, but also acceptable. I have to think about this. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. This is good. <laughs> I have to, I'm going to, I'm going to really ingest this because I, I think that's one of the important things when you haven't heard about something is to ingest it and reflect mm -hmm. upon it because you have immediate thoughts about it, right? You have an immediate thought about something you've never heard before. And my, 
I'm going to think, reflect on it, but in, in being in this conversation is it's, I started thinking about examples of when people go from the most advanced yet acceptable to well beyond that. Uh-huh. Right. And, and I feel like, you know, it immediately. You're like, whoops, <laughs> like, yeah, that's a little much right there. You know, yep. there's an art to that. It feels like it's a very nuanced approach to something. Yeah, there's definitely an art to that. And there are people that have have gotten there. I mean, oh gosh, Nazi Germany is a great example of this because Hitler did not start with this extreme philosophy. That's not how he would have gotten all those people to follow him. He started with other things. He started with, you know, he wanted to empower a certain group of people. He wanted them to rise he wanted to work for the betterment and for the future he didn't just get to the the point immediately he built up he so that like exactly what you're saying you have to be this is how he did it i mean this is what like all the studies of of this extremely evil person how all these studies have have resulted in that saying that if you build up that momentum and where people trust you more and more you can throw out more and more outrageous things Elon Musk is another example. I, honestly, I was thinking about it. <laughs> I was like, yeah, and I was thinking like, what's the point? Like, what's the turning point when someone goes from, uh, I would say, uh, you know, an advanced yet moderate stance on something like what usually what in your mind causes that kind of tipping point? I'm not a psychologist, so okay, I, I, I have to say that, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anything that I say should be just my opinion. I feel like you always had that somewhere inside you. Mm. So I feel that when you start, when you start speaking in public and being more of a public figure, most people start from a conservative stance. They start from a point where they want to be very accepted, they don't want to take too many risks. They're not going to be super bold because they want people to like them. So that's where they're starting off and they're presenting only the safest ideas that are from their heads out in the public space. Then you build trust with the audience. You build credibility and you build your own confidence to say and reveal more and more of yourself. You start getting appreciated for your ideas even more and you start this, you, you get pleasantly surprised along the way where you think, oh, people actually care about my opinion. I don't just have to say the generic stuff. I can say the stuff that I really feel. Oh, this is awesome. And it's like a bell curve, right? It goes up to a point where it can't go up anymore. And, the, and if you're really clever, smart, and business-minded, you're going to stay up there. And that should be amazing. That if you if you keep hitting that target where you're sharing enough of yourself and not the crazy, <laughs> and you're getting people to, to like your content and spread your content, you're going to get more and more famous. Unbox Therapy. Are you, uh, are you, do you follow Unbox Therapy, mm -hmm. the channel on YouTube? They're a great example of this. They are very, very smart business-minded people that stumbled upon this one thing, the art of unboxing. He started off this guy just by himself, uh, Louis, and he built this now what can only be described as a growing empire of unbox therapy. And he's at this point where he still talks about acceptable stuff. He doesn't alienate anyone. He 
has all the major companies on his side because he says more or less nice things about them. He doesn't, you know, go off on the rails. He doesn't go off on rants that are unacceptable. And he's cashing in on it. Good for him. You know, I, I only know about some of this back backstory because I worked with a company that hired him as an influencer and I know that he gets the big bucks. Good for him. It's only when you start sharing the crazy, I think. <laughs> and not just that, when you start letting the popularity feed the crazy. Because I feel like we all have little seeds in our heads we don't let them grow. We have all these voices in our heads. We don't let them grow. But when you get this, this power rush, when you get this boost in your confidence that, oh, people love me, people love me no matter what, that is the downfall. I don't think that you can ever take people's appreciation for granted. You can never say that people are going to love me no matter what. I'm sorry, that is just simply not true. You have to deserve it. You have to earn it all the time, whether you're just starting out or you're a celebrity or you're a president or you're whoever. So that's where I really feel that people start getting disconnected from their audience and then eventually from reality. <laughs> that was really well said, Nashi. <laughs> I mean, uh, for, some, for just an opinion... It was a very nuanced, uh, very analytical version of an opinion. Uh, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think it's like you can almost like detail the tipping point. It's like, like you said, Elon Musk, I don't want to get away from that. Like, I, I have a Tesla. I'm a Tesla owner. I enjoy the product. I think it's good. But there's a point where like you, you have a product and you start seeing the people who create the product. You're like, why are they moving into a weird direction? Like, why don't you just be about this product? <laughs> like, which, you know, it's, it's just like, it's like that. It's like Lady Gaga said, the fame monster, you know, it's the attention mm -hmm. of people are gassing you up all the time. You know, it's like, I think maybe even some people I've known, I think they public speak all the time because they want the fame monster. They want the, the roar of the crowd all yeah. the time. You know, it's an, it's an addictive quality to be fawned over to people clap. Mm -hmm for you all the time mm -hmm. and it's uh but it, it can go over the point where it's like you start seeing that person change and we are seeing that with people like an elon musk where you're like okay some of this stuff is just batshit crazy why are you saying this like you know like stop being this yeah. being this way like they had the chi they're losing the chi you know it's like it's the balance is off the balance is off you know yeah. And when you're in it, it's hard to see it. You 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 miss the the forest for the trees. Yeah. It's I'm I, I don't know. I'm sure he's getting his advisors and his PR people talking to him and giving this feedback. And he doesn't even need that. He just needs to look at it online and see what people are saying. But you have to be open to it. If you're not open to it, you're gonna start just keep doing what you're doing because yeah. you have this blind conviction that it's okay. Yeah. And that, that's the problem with extremism too, is like you have gained such a, a, a following that even when you say crazy stuff, people cheer and laugh. And it's like, even if it's wrong, you're getting validation that it's good for that. And it, it's just a weird, it's a weird cycle that I feel with that, you know, but mm -hmm. 
uh, I love how you explain this stuff and how you move through these conversations. Are you like, it's just my opinion. I'm like, yeah, but it feels like more than that. Like, you know, it's like well put together, you know, like that's, (laughs) that's a sign of obviously you understand how to put things together, thoughts and ideas and how to move through them. And it sounds like you formulated it in a way. That's a good public speaking (laughs) aspect, you know? (laughs) It's a good thing I do that for a living. Do you feel that you could just on (laughs) the spot go and do like, if somebody said, Hey, five minutes, I need you to go and speak to this group of people about (laughs) X thing. You just go do it and do well at it. Depends on the X thing for sure. Like anything I have. Oh, if they give me freedom to talk about anything, then yes, I can. I've, I've hosted events before. I've been in rooms of people where I've had to just improvise I'm a trained improv artist, so improvising doesn't scare me. I've had to actually go into rooms where I've had to make them laugh, which is way more difficult than imparting information and making them laugh without any scripts or anything. So that was super hard. So yeah, for sure, I can improvise. But of course, if you ask me, you know, Nasheen, go and talk about microbiology, no way. (laughs) I can't. I'm I'm not going to, I'm probably going to be able to make some feeble jokes about it (laughs) and about my own, you know, ignorance of it. But I'm not going to be able to, of course, talk about just any topic. Yeah. But uh, improvising is is not that it's not that difficult, only because I've done it for about, I don't know, maybe a decade or like 12 or 13 years by now. Is improvisation, do you think it's an important element of public speaking? Yes. I would say it is, and I would also say it's massively misunderstood. A lot of people think that improvising is the same thing as winging it, but it's not. Explain the difference. Improvising, right. Improvising is an art form. It's learning the rules to be able to go on stage and perform without a script. When you're being trained for improv, you get trained on a lot of things. You're essentially practicing for something that cannot be practiced because it's not like theater rehearsals where you have a script and you just rehearse the script. In improv training, you're just training your mind to be able to perform well when you're on the spot. You learn all kinds of rules and principles and structures. You understand what story structures are. You understand how to keep the momentum going. You understand the value of yes and, which is the first improv principle that when your teammate says something, you have to build upon it to create that illusion of reality, not just break it down, not just shut it down. So improvisation is about giving yourself the tools to be able to perform well on stage. It's not just going on stage without preparation and and hoping that you're, you can wing it. A lot of people who use the word improvisation very loosely or don't know that it's an actual thing you can be trained on think that, ah, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to work on my slides till the last minute and I'm just going to go and wing it. And that is a real danger because if you don't have the right tools to be able to perform well under pressure and improvise, then you're going to end up reading off of your slides. You're going to end up umming and eyeing and using all kinds of filler words that will dilute your message. You're going to end up not being able to be present in the moment Because you're going to be worried so much about, ah, what was my next slide? Oh, I don't know. Uh, Okay, this one. Uh, Okay, this one. 
So that's all of that is going to undermine your performance and ultimately your authority and your thought leadership. So definitely knowing how to improvise, which for me means understanding how to perform well under pressure with or without a script is very different from just winging it. There's a lot of gold here today. I mean, a lot. Of, <laughs> there's a lot of gold here today, people. <laughs> Thank you. Seriously, you're very good at what you do. And uh, you have a great presence you. about yourself, of course. And uh, I, I'm a big language clarifier or operational definer because I think a lot of people BS and they call it improv. improv I'm just improvising. It's like, no, you're unprepared. You're just saying stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm going to wing this test. Yeah. I'm like, you clearly didn't study. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Crazy stuff. Well, listen, uh, I've, it's been very enlightening for me speaking with you. And uh, honestly, the hair drew me in initially. I'm not going to lie. It drew me I, in I appreciate initially. that. And two, I like honesty. I'm all about being honest. Two, you're on LinkedIn a lot. That's been my main platform forever, for like 15 years. I was like, all right, I like this because I don't see a lot of people focusing on LinkedIn. It's just, like you mentioned, very TikTok-y, Instagram. I'm not into that. I like LinkedIn. I really enjoy that aspect of it. Um, and, and now getting all this information from you, it's like, man, it's a very powerful individual here. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. And thank you for inviting me on your yeah. show. No, I'm really happy about it. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of people pumping speaking, like a lot. I see it all the time and get out there and do this. But uh, you have a different way about yourself with it that I think is really unique and uh, very grounded, very grounded, which I love. Thank you. Thanks. I do appreciate that. You didn't know this was the praise part of the uh, podcast here. You just like you get nice things said about you, you know. <laughs> like, as long as there aren't too many bad things said about me later, I'm good. Well, with that. I mean, I'll try to temper that later, but you know, I mean, we'll see. <laughs> we'll just have to see. You know, when I listen, when I watch it back, we'll see how I feel about it. Right. Mm. <laughs> listen. Thank you so much for giving me some of your time. And uh, please let all the wonderful people know how they can connect with you, Nasheen. Sure. So I offer one-on-one -on -one coaching for anyone who's interested in really understanding how to become more impactful on camera or on stage. And for that, LinkedIn is the best way to reach out to me. I'm Nasheen Chen on LinkedIn. And I also have a free newsletter that you can subscribe to. And every Saturday, I share a lot of public speaking tips with very, very actionable next steps because I don't believe in fluff. I'm all about giving you things that you can really use right off the bat. So if you're interested in the newsletter, it's speakasaleader.com. You can sign up there and I would love to share it with you. No fluff here, people. None. Right. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Not doing none of that stuff. Nasheen, thank you so much. I really appreciate you. And thanks for giving me some of your time. Thanks. Thanks so much, Dr. G. It was a pleasure talking to you.